You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Please tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, Idolatry in Identity. Idolatry in Identity. As mentioned last week, this morning we are starting a new sermon series called Taboo, a series where we seek to address issues and topics that are not commonly spoken about or talked about in the church for a variety of reasons, perhaps because of the sensitivity of the topics or, or the stigma revolving, revolving around those issues, or just simply a lack of care um, to discuss these topics. For example, we hear a lot about marriage and godly relationships in the church. But how about singleness, right? What are single people supposed to do? How about uh, divorce? What are the biblical grounds for divorce? And how do we receive someone who's experienced uh, or have gone through that? Or how about sex? <gasps> My goodness, talking about sex in the church, there's children in the room. Well, see, of course, there are topics like this in the church that for the longest time that Christians and churches have been generally reluctant or even outright refused to talk about certain topics that have become taboo, something, that, something that's not discussed or brought up. And as a result, what's happened is that the world has stepped in and has talked about these things instead and has redefined them and has filled that void of truth with, on these topics instead of the church. The church won't talk about sex, okay? Let's, the, the world says, okay, let's talk about it then. And you can do it with anyone you want and whenever you want. The church won't talk about divorce, okay? Let's talk about it then and, and, and normalize it and even make people think that it's, a, and it's, an, it's an okay thing, a good thing. The church won't talk about singleness, okay? Let's, let's, let's talk about it and make the purpose of singleness about money and, and, promiscu- and living promiscuously and, and defining your identity. And as a result, in the past few decades, we've seen this cultural shift, this, this, this moral shift in our society that has redefined words and gender and sexuality and human purpose, all because the church has stayed silent on these certain truths instead of proclaiming it. Instead of being the pillar and foundation of the truth, the church has become passive and fickle about the truth, even at times being bending and compromising biblical truth just to fit the narrative of the world. And so with this new series, we seek what the Bible, the Word of God, has to say on these topics, as well as reclaim, redeem them from the world, from what the world has said about them. Now, interestingly enough, this series has been a long time coming. It's been in the works, in the back burner for a while, actually, ever since we were in the basement and Pastor Joshua was still with us. Uh, glad to have you this morning, by the way. Right? We, were, we had this discussion about we should do a, a series on this topic, on taboo, if you remember that. I know you're old and your memory is going, but that's okay. Uh, but we, we had this discussion, so, so I, I think this is the perfect season, the time that we could do this. And, and Pastor Joshua, here we are, right? We finally made it. Uh, praise God. Now, as we, begin this, as we begin this series, the first taboo topic that we'll be discussing is a topic of gender or sexual identity. This topic is not so much taboo in the church as, is, as it is a more uh, recent issue that's come up in our society. What's made it taboo is more so the stake that the world has on this issue. 
And what I mean by this is that the world has taken a monopoly on this topic, and anyone who opposes this view or brings a different perspective is often called a bigot or ignorant or insensitive. And as a result, the church and some Christians have taken to staying quiet about this topic as to not offend or or be labeled homophobic, for example. Meanwhile, the world continues to go down this rabbit hole of deconstructing gender and sexuality. And I'm sure you've already seen this before. We see it all the time on social media, people having to define their gender. He slash him, she slash her, they slash them, Z slash Zer. Sounds like Dr. Zeus, right? And the list goes on from movies to TV shows, from even video games, right? It always seems to be some sort of uh, homosexual or or non-binary person in these things. Someone from the, you know, the LGBTQ plus spectrum. I mean, all you have to do is pull out your phone. Go ahead. This is the only time I'm going to tell you to do it. Go ahead, pull out your phone. No one does it. Man, good Christians. Look at this. Praise God. Well, you don't have to look too far. Again, just look at your phones and the emojis that come with your phone. In my phone, there's a, there's a bearded woman, there's a man dressed as a bride, and there's a lot of faces that are meant to not look either male or female, non-binary. The Western world is changing and it's taking with it definitions of gender and sexuality and redefining them to fit their worldview, their narrative, their agenda. And the church must not stay silent on this issue. It must remain that pillar and foundation of the truth that we are called to be. Now, some may say, why should this matter? Why should we care about what people do behind closed doors, in the privacy of their own home? Why should we care about what what gender others prefer to be called? It's their life. It doesn't affect me, right? Well, the reality is it, it will and does affect you. When the Canadian government unanimously unanimously passes a bill that criminalizes persuading or counseling someone to pursue the gender that they were born into or towards heterosexuality, as a believer, as a Christian, this does affect you. It means that you can't preach even biblical truth or your biblical stance on gender or sexuality without risking being fined or sentenced to prison. When the Canadian government makes it, it makes it a crime for parents to try and persuade their child out of doing a gender reassignment surgery, or makes it a crime for parents to say no to hormone blockers, understand that this will affect how you want to raise your kids and how you parent. When you have non-binary or gender-fluid teachers in the school system that is indoctrinating your kids and grooming them for a lifestyle similar to them, understand that this affects you and the generation to come. When companies celebrate Pride Month and you are forced to wave a rainbow flag or else be labeled a bigot by your coworkers or even fired, understand that this affects you. When churches change their doctrines, For the sake of inclusivity, and you see an LGBTQ minister leading churches, not only does this affect you, but it also affects the witness of the church. Listen, this is not a fly-by-night topic or something churches and Christians can just stay quiet about. We must preach the truth and be grounded in it because this topic isn't going away, and if we, the church, do not make a stand for the truth, will be swept away in the current of ever-changing morality and worldviews and be bullied into staying quiet and tolerating sin. 
My desire this morning, church, is to discuss what the Bible has to say on these things, not what the world has to say, not what clinical psychologists have to say, or even what science has to say. I want to look at what Scripture, our highest authority, has to say on this matter. So my hope this morning is to plant you in the Word of God on these issues, but also show us a way in which we can address with love those who might be struggling or living in these lifestyles. So let's get into it. There's a lot to cover this morning. First and foremost, let me set the thesis for this, this morning's sermon. We need to understand that when it comes to gender or sexual identity, the problem is not physical, it's spiritual. The problem is not physical, it's spiritual. The root for a corrupt identity whether gender or sexual or whether you identify being gay or straight or male or female or anything else, the root for a corrupt or unnatural identity is idolatry, is idolatry. And we'll see this in our passage this morning. The Apostle Paul systematically lays it out for us in our passage, explaining why humanity has become corrupt in their gender, in their sexuality, in their passions. Let's break this down for us. Everyone say jump for me. Fantastic. I was preaching at, other ch- at another church last Sunday, and uh, I asked people to jump, and no one said jump. So I'm very thankful for your enthusiasm. <laughs> Firstly, Paul says, uh, he states that nature declares God. Nature declares God. Right? We see this in our passage, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We'll come back to this, but verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that nature itself, from the, the smallest cell in the human body to the, to the largest galaxy in the universe, declares the existence of God, namely His eternal power and His divine nature. And rightly so. We see the complexity of the universe, the beauty of it, the, the, the science of it, the laws and principles that govern our universe, and the logical conclusion is that there is an intelligent design behind it. It's not by random chance or the process of trial and error via natural selection. There's complexity to everything, from the largest supernova to the, in space to the smallest strand of DNA, and all of it points to the genius of our Creator. Nature declares God. Of course, what's implied here is that God designs nature, Right? Again, our passage is, it says that His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. The original Greek word for made here is poema, meaning workmanship. It denotes a craftsman sculpting, refining, chiseling, something into a work of art. God carefully designed the universe and everything in it with intention, with care, with precision, and more importantly, with purpose. There is nothing in the universe created by God that lacks purpose. There is a sovereign design to everything, and that's including gender and sexuality, but we'll get to that. So nature declares God, but because God designs nature. Then Paul says, nature defines identity. Nature defines identity. We'll go down to verse 26 of our passage. We'll come back to the others in a bit. Verse 26, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
Now, before we examine what Paul explicitly says here, understand what he's implying. There is a nature, a natural, you can even say biological disposition attributed to men and women. There There has to be, if he says that women exchanged natural relations or contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations. What Paul is implying here is that men and women have a natural disposition towards either maleness or femaleness. Femaleness. It makes up who we are, how we function, what we're capable of, what we build our relationships around. It forms our identity. And so now if you sort of backtrack what's already been said, what Paul's already been establishing here, that nature, that nature, that nature, that natural disposition that formulates our identity is therefore then designed by God. And not just designed by God, but in fact made in the image of God. Remember back in Genesis when God set out to create humanity, he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The inherent nature of man is rooted in being image bearers of God. Meaning humanity inherently displays some attributes of God, specifically in our capacity, in our authority, and also in intimacy. So let me break this down for you really quick. As image bearers of God, like God, we have the capacity for good. Showing mercy, showing kindness, acting justly, having compassion. By human standards, humanity is able to do good. Now, of course, we know that's corrupted due to the fall, due to sin, and it's why we need the Holy Spirit to work, in, to work and will in us to act for God's good pleasure. So that's our capacity for good. Just like God, we're able to do good. Secondly, as image bearers of God, we have an inherent authority over the earth. God gave man dominion over the earth to steward and subdue it for God's glory. Just how God has authority, we reflect a fragment of that authority as image bearers. And lastly, as image bearers of God, we have an inherent disposition towards intimacy and relationship. Similar to how the Trinity, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in perfect harmony, perfect relationship all throughout eternity, God gave humanity the inherent ability and need to be in relationship with one another. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. Our our natural disposition reflects the glory of our creator. That's our identity given to us by God. That's how we were created. That's what we were created for. It's our purpose. It's why Christians must value life and protect it because every life is an image bearer of God and is meant to reflect his glory. God designs nature, and nature defines identity. So what happened then? What happens then when humanity denies God? When we in our sinful state forsake God, when we deny the truths of God? What happens when we abandon the image that we were created to reflect and instead replace it with something else in the world? Well, Paul tells us, let's go back to verse 21 of our passage. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is what sinful, fallen humanity does. Even though every logical conclusion screams that there is a God, and that he deserves to be worshipped and praised and honored, we choose instead not to honor him as God. And in foolishness and in sin, in our hearts, our hearts are darkened and hardened towards God. 
But listen, we don't stop there as human beings. It says in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Instead of God, giving God the glory and the honor that he truly deserves, we take it a step even further and give that honor and that worship instead to things of creation. You know what that's called? That's called idolatry. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creation. Instead of honoring God, we honor what God has created instead. Instead of recognizing God as the author and designer of life, we make creation and even ourselves out to be God. That's idolatry. Well, Pastor Ian, I thought this was a sermon about gender or sexual identity. How does idolatry fit into all of this? Because again, remember our thesis, the root of any sexual perversion or gender dysphoria or any corrupt identity is idolatry. Because when you stop honoring God as God, and instead replace him with something else, something from creation, whether it be another person or an animal or even yourself, you're not only casting aside the authority of God over your life, but you're abandoning your identity as an image bearer of God. An image bearer that was created with purpose, with worth, with value. And when you abandon that identity, you will seek to fill that void with an identity of your own. And rightly so, because if God is no longer the highest authority over your life, but instead it's you or the world or, or people's opinions then what, you are, then what you are or what you identify as becomes defined by what, by what you replace God with. Because the identity that we take on often reflects the idol we worship. So if you're a man and you idolize a certain attribute about a woman, you'll find a way to reflect that attribute. Or if you're a woman and you idolize a certain quality of man, you'll be drawn to reflect that quality. And listen, this isn't just about gender or sexual identity issues. And it's, it's the same for every corrupt identity outside of God's design for humanity. If you idolize money, money becomes your God, and that's what defines your life. If you idolize success, success becomes your God, and that's what defines your life. If you idolize beauty, your family, your possessions, your health, and everything else, those things become the God of your life, and it defines your identity. Again, this is not just about gender dysphoria or sexual identity and any identity that finds itself outside of God's design. Remember what verse 18 says, right? At the very top of our passage, where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So listen, you may not be struggling with homosexuality, but if money or status or sex has become an idol to you, has been has become your God, has defined who you are, you're in the same boat. See, here's the bottom, bottom line to what the Apostle Paul is getting at in our passage. Idolatry destroys identity. Idolatry destroys identity. In three ways. Uh, firstly, there's the, the consequence of idolatry. The consequence of idolatry. Three times we read in our passage, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. First in verse 24, then verse 26, then verse 28. Now, we know that in Scripture, if something is repeated three times, it's important. It's, being, it's emphasizing something. In this case, what Paul is emphasizing is what is known as the passive wrath of God. 
We know, that we, we know what God's active wrath or his active judgment looks like throughout Scripture, right? We, there's the flood, there's Sodom and Gomorrah, there's the plagues in Egypt. Even the cross where Christ died is a symbol of God's wrath and judgment being poured out on the Savior on our behalf. But what Paul is talking about in our passage is the passive wrath of God, namely handing sinners over to their sin and their sinful lifestyles, their, their choices. See, when people choose sin, when people choose idols over God, one of the ways God punishes them is by handing them over to that sin, that lifestyle. It's like, you want to pursue that destructive lifestyle? My hands are off, I won't stop you. You, you, want, you, you won't honor me as God, instead replace me with some idol that you worship? I'll, by all means, do what you want, live the way you want, I won't stop you. You, you want to determine for yourself your own identity, your own purpose in life, your own value, your own self-worth. By all means, go ahead, see where that takes you. I won't stop you. That's the passive wrath of God. Instead of God lovingly keeping us from our sin, from keeping us from evil, God removes his hand and lets us live the lifestyle that we choose. And that's a scary thing. Listen, we should not be worried about the trials and, the su- and suffering that God sends our way. Those are often signs from God reminding us that we need Him, that that we need to come back to Him, that He's refining us. What we should worry about is when we are living in sin, free of trials, and God does nothing to pull us out of it. That is a good sign that we are in the midst of God's passive wrath. That's a scary place to be in. Because as we see in our passage, that consequence of facing God's passive wrath because of our idolatry turns into a corruption of idolatry, a corruption of idolatry. Let's go back to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up, there it is again, to dishonorable passions, for their their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul says that when God hands us over to our sinful choices, what follows is that our passions, what we desire, what we long for, what makes us happy, become corrupted. They get skewed by sin. Our natural disposition uh, towards maleness or femaleness becomes distorted, as we see in our passage, and we can grow to love an identity that was never meant to be our own. And in case it wasn't clear, yes, homosexuality is a sin. It goes against God's natural order and design for males and females and is a result of sinful idolatry. The same goes for males trying to be females or females trying to be males. The Bible says it's sin. But listen, it's not just homosexuals who are in this boat again. Paul also says in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That's a depraved mind, to do what ought not to be done. So not only are our passions corrupted as a result of idolatry, but also our mind, our will to do things. And Paul lists out those things that, that uh, you know, he lists out all those who are guilty are in that same boat as well. Verse 9, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy and murder and strife and maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Because of idolatry, 
All our passions and our mind become corrupted to do what ought not to be done. It's not just those who are homosexuals. If you've ever gossiped or slandered someone or coveted what's not yours, if you ever hated someone to the point where you thought you could murder them, listen, you're, you're in the same boat as someone who is trying to transition to another gender. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is true inclusivity, by the way. It's not enabling sin, it's recognizing that we all fail God. This is the corruption of idolatry. Then Paul concludes by saying in verse 32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the consent of idolatry. The consent of idolatry. It's the approval of sin and sinful lifestyles as a result of our own sinful choices and lives. It's being complacent towards sin, even enabling others to sin. It's approving and celebrating sin. This is the normalization of lifestyles that are actually abnormal, not in the original design of God. This is why the world approves so much of these alternative lifestyles, because it, sin gives birth to sin and improves of sin and desires to normalize what is corrupt so that what is holy and pure and righteous becomes what is abnormal, becomes what is disdained and despised, and so that what is initially meant to reflect the glory of God would instead reflect the shame of man. It all starts with idolatry. So church, again... We need to understand that when it comes to gender or sexual identity or any other corrupt identity that people can identify with, the problem is not physical, it's spiritual. The root for a corrupt or unnatural identity is idolatry. There is a consequence, a corruption, even a consent when we commit idolatry. And it's what we are facing in the world. But listen, knowing this should not discourage us or cause us to hate those in these lifestyles if anything it should cause us to have more compassion if we know that those who are in these lifestyles are in them because they are facing the passive wrath of god it should cause us to mourn and weep for them and desire for them all the more to hear the gospel and repent because if they don't the passage is clear again verse 32 though they know god's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. The end result is to experience not just God's passive wrath, but God's active judgment for those who live in sin. And again, that judgment is not just for homosexuals or, or those who mutilate their bodies, but every liar, every murderer, every adulterer, every sinner, whether gay or straight, whether male or female. For the wages of sin is death, not just physical, but spiritual. They face the wrath of God in hell. So what's our hope in all of this? So what's our hope for our friends and loved ones or family members who may be struggling with gender dysphoria or sexual identity? Very simple. Our hope is in the one who came to restore us back to righteousness, back to God's original design for humanity. Our hope is in the one who takes us from places of bondage to places of God's freedom. Our hope is in the one who renews the mind and softens the heart. Our hope is in the one who washes us clean of sin and makes us white as snow and credits his righteousness for our sin. 
Our hope is in the only one who can change even the hardest of hearts, even the most wretched and most depraved, even the most corrupt sinner, and turn them into forgiven and born-again saints of God. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. If idolatry is at the root of corrupt identity, look what Paul says Jesus came to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has Christ came so that we would no longer have to be slaves to our flesh, living corrupted desires, whether it's same-sex attractions or a desire to be a gender you're not, or even lust in heterosexual attractions. Christ died so that we can have the ability to live not for ourselves, but for Him. And here's the kicker, right? In Christ, we have a new identity. We are a new creation, no longer defined by the sins of our past or the struggles of our flesh. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, the new identity in Christ, new passions, new desires, new purpose to live for. Listen, regardless of what sin has done to us, it cannot surpass what Christ can do for us. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin reigned, mercy conquered. And where the world says that love eventually wins, the Bible says that love won at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where love and mercy and grace was poured out on us. That's how we win them. Jesus Christ. So church, if you have a friend or a loved one who is struggling with their identity, regardless of what that identity may be, point them to Christ. Point them to the one who forgives sin, who accepts sinners, who renews, who changes lives. Point them to the only one who can give real purpose, real identity, and real love, lasting love. And if you're a believer and you're struggling in your own identity, your own passions. Go back to the start. Our passage in verse 21 says that idolatry starts when we stop honoring God. When we stop giving thanks to Him. So if you want to dis- rediscover your true identity in Christ, you must start by honoring God. Have Him as the highest authority of your life. Show Him the respect and the re- reverence that He rightfully deserves. Get rid of your idols and make him Lord over your life once again. And thank him. Show him gratitude, right? Show gratitude. Give praise for what he's done in your life, what he's created you for to be your gender and your sexuality. Give thanks to God. The only way for you to be secured in your identity is when you are secured in the identity of our Savior. One last thing as we close here and enter into a time of communion. I understand that sometimes what we see on media and things that we are presented with when it comes to um, talking to homosexuals or people who are going through gender dysphoria, that it seems daunting. It seems daunting. It's a difficult task. How do you share the gospel when 
Sometimes people are so entrenched in their worldviews. Um, let me just share this story. When I was in the Philippines doing mission work, maybe almost 10 years ago now, and we were doing some street pre- preaching. I was preaching the gospel in this busy um, street in, in the city. And as I was preaching, there was a girl that, was, that God was highlighting me, highlighting to me at the back of this crowd. And after I was done preaching, I went over to her and, and I asked her what she thought about everything I was saying, you know, I was presenting the gospel. And she said, it's all good. But, he, but she said, but how does that apply to me? I'm a lesbian. And that was honestly the first time I was confronted with this. Like, what do I say? What do I say to this? And that's when the Holy Spirit just prompted me to say, start by loving God. Start by loving God more than anything else in this world. Start by loving him more than your girlfriend, more than your, your desires, your passions, your own intentions, your own will. Start by loving God. And listen, that is a call for everybody in this room. Love God more than anything in this world. To love him with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength. That's the first and greatest command of the Bible. Start by loving God. Church, there is... There's freedom from any sin, any sinful lifestyle. But it all starts when we love God above all else. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.